Well, if you've been with us the last two weeks, you know that we're in our new sermon series called Jesus Appears. And we're looking at the moments that Jesus reveals himself after the resurrection to the, to the people that he had close in his life. And, and two weeks ago, we looked at the road to Emmaus and the two disciples that he met along the road. And then uh, this past week, we looked at Mary Magdalene and how Jesus appeared to her. And how each of those appearances, Jesus revealed something different about what it meant to have a resurrected Christ in their life. For the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, we saw the importance of what it looks like in your moments of doubt and in your faith where you're struggling and wrestling with the things of God. Particularly in the two disciples wrestling with the fact that, that, these, that, that Jesus had died. And they hadn't yet seen him resurrected and they were wondering, is this really the Messiah? Was he really the one that we were meant to follow? And then Jesus appears to them in those discussions and, and it reveals to us that, that even in those moments of doubt and in those wrestling, that, that if we partner with someone else, when we have our brothers and sisters in Christ with one another, we can wrestle with our doubt. And that Jesus is there among us. We were reminded of the passage that when two or more are gathered together, there I am among you. And so Jesus fulfills his resurrection in community with each other. And then for Mary Magdalene, we actually talked about how personalized his death and resurrection was for her. It was in that experience of, of Mary at the tomb weeping, wondering what had happened to, to Christ's body. That when she encounters him, she doesn't recognize him at first, thinking that he's just the gardener that, that took his body away. But then Jesus says to her, Mary. He revealed to her her name, and, and the scriptures tell us that the sheep know his voice. And so Mary recognized the very voice of Jesus. And when she heard him, she realized how much everything that he said had come true. And the fullness of her love and his love were on display in that moment. There was the fullness of knowing that she had been forgiven much. And that everything that he did was for her. And so she responded by clinging to him and loving him. And how we too should recognize that the power of Christ, that his death and resurrection was for us individually. That we can personalize the cross. And so that's what we talked about these last two weeks. And today we're going to continue uh, in our story. We're going to continue with John 20. And we're going to look at verses 19 through 23. And in this passage, Jesus is appearing to the disciples. And so let's read this passage together. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Let us pray. Lord, this morning as we come to you, I, 
I know, Lord, that even as I stand here, I'm just full of weakness. God, I, I am feeling just this overwhelming tiredness and burden from whatever it is, Lord, and I don't know precisely, but God, you know. And Lord, even as I stand here, I know that, that your spirit is moving and I pray that, that your spirit would speak through me. Because God, it's not about my words, but it's about what you need us to hear. It's about what you need our hearts to be touched by this morning. So God, I just pray. I pray for my sake and for our sake, God, that I would be made very little so that you can be made very much. Lord, I love you. We love you. We thank you for this precious gift. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thinking about this passage this morning, I really honestly did not know where I was going to go. And when I was thinking about something to share with you about this passage, I, I really didn't know what to share. But I was thinking, and I came up with, with this story, and, and it is a real story. It's not a made-up story, but a story nonetheless about when I was a child. And you see, growing up, we had these family friends right down the street that were very close to us. They were pretty much family. Uh, we did everything together. We celebrated all the holidays together, and, and our parents were very, very close. And so that means that growing up, there were a lot of date nights where the parents would go and they would do their thing and then they would hire babysitters for each of the kids and, and we would be there. But oftentimes, we would uh, convince the babysitters that we need to go over to the other person's house and we would all get to play together and, and just have fun. You know, typical babysitter families, you know, our parents are on a date night or whatever kind of fun activity. And, and, and we loved it. We loved the fact that, that the babysitters knew each other well enough, that they wanted to hang out together and that we as the kids uh, knew each other well enough that we wanted to play together while our, our parents were, were out and, and doing the things that parents do. And so we had these babysitters. There was this one time that this was happening and, and we had our babysitters and we convinced them to go over to the other person's house. And so we were, doing, we were having a great time. And, you know, babysitters, when they get together, you know, they're not always keeping their eyes on the kids so closely. And, you know, this is no knock on those babysitters. They were great. And, and they did everything that they had to do in the moment. But, but here's the thing. Kids will do dumb things when they're left to their own wiles. And so uh, me and my friend had this brilliant idea to um, be as obnoxious as possible to my sister and his brother while they were playing in one room and we were in the other. We're like, well, what can we do to be so annoying to them? You know, because that's, that's what we do. As, as siblings, we annoy one another. And so we were coming up with all these things in this plan, and eventually we pretty much just landed on, we're just going to run through the room and just scream as loud as possible, and we'll go in one door, and we'll exit through the other door. And the other door was a Jack and Jill bathroom that connected to the other bedroom. And so it's like, it's perfect. This is exactly the best idea that we could possibly come up with. Well, as it turns out, um, it was a great idea until there was a lot of miscommunication about who was running where and starting where and which door one was going through and which door one was not going through. 
And so what ended up happening is my friend runs through one door and I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm gonna wait. And then once he comes through, I'll go through the other door and then we'll, we'll meet in the middle, we'll both be yelling and screaming at the same time. And what ended up happening was there was a miscue as to when we were going. And so as I'm standing behind the bathroom door, getting ready to open it, my friend just slams through that door and nails me square in the head. And in that moment, um, I just fell to the floor, completely upset. And before I knew it, there was just this stream of red flowing down my face. Just flowing. And I lost it. Because at that moment, at however old I was, all I could think was, I can see out of one eye, and all I see is red in the other, I must have lost my eye. My eye must be gone. And, and now I am going to be a one-eyed kid, and I'm going to be made fun of on the school bus. Everyone's going to make fun of me at school. What am I going to do? I'm the one-eyed kid. I have one eye, and there is nothing. There. That's it. I, I, I have feared that I have lost my eyeball. And, 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 of course, the babysitters come running up as, as fast as they can, and they scoop me up and get me down to the kitchen. And I actually remember, oddly, this is the thing that I remember, is they sit me on the counter because you are never allowed to sit on the counter. But here I am sitting on the counter. But, but I've lost an eye, and so I'm freaking out thinking this isn't good, and, and the babysitters are kind of freaking out, which definitely isn't good, and so they're calling the parents, letting them, hey, by the way, like, uh, emergency situation, uh, we're taking one of the kids to the hospital, and then I start hearing emergency room, and I'm thinking, well, every story I've ever read and every movie I've ever seen, the emergency room is where people go to die, so I'm like, great, I didn't just lose my eye, I am about to die. Fantastic. This is so wonderful. I cannot wait to see what's going on. No, I'm just full of fear. I'm a scared kid because all I can see is red. And all I know is that I'm injured and that I have to go to the hospital. And so long story short, I end up at the hospital. Um, I didn't lose my eye. Um, praise God. Uh, that's not how that works. If you can see red, it means you can actually see. Um, but they put a, a cold compress on my head and they eventually decide, hey, you're going to need six stitches. So I got, I got six stitches put over my eye and now I have this scar. So if you, if you look close enough, you can actually see like there's a little break in, in my eyebrow and I have a scar there that, that's, that's permanent. It's always going to be there and it's always a reminder of of the day that Austin did dumb things. Um, but it was in the midst of, of all this fear that, that I was just left at the end of the day with six stitches and a scar. I was afraid of so much. I was afraid of so much of the unknown because I didn't know really what was going on. I was afraid because I did not have the full picture. I didn't know everything that was happening in the moment. And I know that in our own lives, we experience fear because of the unknown. We experience fear because we don't always have every answer laid out right in front of us. Whether that's the fear of the unknown as it involves 
medical emergencies like mine. Or maybe it's not necessarily a medical emergency, but it's something minor. And yet there's this fear surrounding, well, what's going to happen? What's going to be the outcome? How are things going to play out? What is going to be the diagnosis, the prognosis? Maybe, maybe it's a fear about a project that you have been working on relentlessly, hoping to get that project finished. But then there's this fear that, that grips you. It's like, well, what if I get it all done and then it doesn't work the way that I thought? What if it actually doesn't come together? What if I start, what if I just like, I get this, and I, and I get this too, I get paralyzed. I have this paralyzation. It's like, I start working on something that's like, well, it's not going to work out the way I want, so I got to stop. I can't move forward. I don't know what to do next because I'm so afraid that all the time I've already put in isn't going to be worth it. Because I start fearing the unknown of what the outcome will be if things don't go the way I plan. Instead of just thinking, well, a little bit of failure just means that I'm on my next path to success. There are so many times in our lives that we become gripped by these moments of fear because of the unknown, because we don't have the answers, and so we just become afraid. I mean, I'll be honest, like every Sunday, there's a little bit of fear that every time I get up here and I stand in front of you, even though I've worked hard and I've done all the, all the preparation in order to have a good sermon, I'm going to come up here and, it, it, and I, nothing's going to come out of my mouth. That I'm just going to be silent because I don't have the words to say because something has gripped me and I'm, I'm like, I've got to push past the fear. There is nothing that I have experienced so far that tells me that, that words aren't going to come out of my mouth when I get up here. But there's always this fear that maybe it could happen. And that fear really truly is in all of us to some extent. And so today we actually meet back up with the disciples who have lost everything. They thought everything was taken away. Everything they had been working toward for the last three years is gone. And so they're full of fear. And so that's where we kind of enter into our passage today. We've already seen Jesus appear to Mary Magdalene in the morning. And then after the morning, he appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he spends his entire time walking with them and talking with them and, and going to their home to break bread with them. And then when they broke bread, they see Jesus and they have to run and tell the disciples. And so our setting today is that it is evening of the same day of the week. On that first day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So much has happened over the past three weeks. We're covering one days of events. We're covering how Mary Magdalene saw Jesus in the morning. We're covering how the two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus saw Jesus in the afternoon. And now we're talking about how his disciples saw him in the evening. And this seeing him in the evening will actually conclude what happens on this first day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so we have the scene set for us by the gospel writer of John. He reveals that it is evening on the first day. And then he reveals specifically that the doors being locked were the, were the disciples for fear of the Jews. The disciples had locked themselves in a room. 
They had locked themselves out of fear. The, the gospel tells us that they were so gripped with fear that they had to lock themselves in. This is a group of Jesus followers that had spent three years walking with Christ, seeing the miracles that he had done, everything that he had done, sitting under his teaching and knowing, actually proclaiming at moments that you are the Son of God, the Christ. And now they find themselves hiding in fear. It's amazing how quickly things can change. You see, it was just three nights ago, actually, that, that several of the disciples were willing to fight the Roman guard when they were coming to, to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter actually pulls out his sword and cuts off one of the guard's ears, and Jesus says, put it away. Put it away. They were so ready to fight. And then three days pass and no longer is there that fight within them. They're, they're filled with fear. And honestly, I, I don't think I can blame them. I don't think I, they, I can blame them. They just saw their teacher. They just saw the one that they had been following for three years put up to a fake trial where they could find no fault with him. But the power of the religious authorities, of the Jewish authorities of that day, could get the crowd on their side so quick that it was able to persuade Pilate that he would rather put an innocent man to death than have the people riot in the streets. And so here they saw how easy it was for Jesus to go to the cross. How could they not be afraid? What if they were next? What if they were out for blood? When would be enough? And so they locked themselves in this room, frightened. You see, the thing about fear is that it becomes debilitating. It very easily makes us forget everything that we believe and know to be true. You see, I know that you've probably heard it before, but there's a reason that in Scripture... The phrase is, do not fear, do not be afraid, or fear not, is one of the most prolific commands found in Scripture. God knows that our fear leads to nowhere good for us. That fear cripples the most faithful believer out of our faith. It pulls us away from it because we allow ourselves to be gripped by something so unknown that we forget that God is still in the midst, working His work in us and through us. And so these disciples, they're, they're sitting there and they've, they've also been gripped by this fear. They don't know what is going on. They, they have every reason to believe that they are next. And here they are in this room, behind locked doors. And they just forget they forget about the time that fear rose for them in the past. It's actually one of my favorite stories in scriptures. In the scriptures, it says um, in Mark 4, 35 through 41, this is as the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum. It reads, on that day, 
When evening had come, once again, in the evening, the evening is this idea of darkness, this idea that the darkness actually has power and control. And so Jesus is meeting the disciples in the evening behind these locked doors for his appearance, but it's also here in the evening in the Gospel of Mark. And when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Can you just imagine Jesus just in the midst of the storm, just sleeping like a baby on the cushion? And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke. And he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, Jesus was present with them. He was just asleep. Yet they were filled with, with fear of what the storm might do, of what it could do. And, and in some ways, that their, their fear was, was real, and yet it was in the wrong place. You see, it wasn't about fearing what was in the world that was working in the world, because they were actually with the one that was worth fearing. I actually love how it ended. It, it didn't say, you know, that they marveled. It said that they were filled with great fear. Not at the storm anymore, but of Christ. Because who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? You see, there is right and proper fear. But it's not fear of the world. It is fear of God. Proverbs even teaches us that the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge is fear of the Lord. And so they had this awe and this marvel of the Christ that stood before them in the boat. But even so, they had witnessed and experienced the power of Jesus in that manner. And yet, and yet, they still forgot. They still forgot that Christ can move and work in that way in their lives, that, that this fear that they had as they stood in that locked room was not a fear that needed to stay. I love how we continue in our passage in, Don, in John this morning. But first, did you notice how Jesus calmed the storm? He said to it, peace, be still. And as Jesus enters the room, this locked room, which, mind you, nobody let him in. It's surrounded by four walls. It is a locked room. And yet somehow Jesus gets inside and he stands among them. But in the same manner that Jesus calms the storm, he speaks the same words to his disciples. Peace. Peace be with you. In our moments of fear, Jesus is not unaware of them. He knows exactly what is going on in the hearts of his disciples as they stand behind that door. He knows 
intimately and deeply what it is that they're going through. He knows that they are paralyzed by what it is that they are supposed to do next. He knows that fear made them forget what he has already accomplished in their midst. But how much more does fear stand when he is no longer with them? This fear led these disciples down a road that, that they wouldn't have otherwise traveled. They were bold in their ministry. They were bold when they walked with Christ, and yet they forgot. And you see, Jesus knows your fear. Jesus knows my fear. He knows the things that I've walked through, that I've gone through. I'm terrified of flying. I'm telling you what, every single time that I have to book a flight, up until the moment that I sit in that seat on the plane, I am gripped with fear. There are so many times that I have thought, I'm just going to not do this flight. I'm going to go rent a car and I'm going to drive. It's going to be okay. I can drive the 18 hours. It's no big deal. But I'm gripped with fear up until the moment that I sit in that seat and I know it's no longer in my control. Whatever happens at that moment, it's out of my control. The the truth is it's always been out of my control. Always been out of my control. But I only finally realize it once I've sat in my seat in the plane and I know I can't get up anymore. I'm like, well, I got to let it go. You see, Jesus even knows that fear within me. And he knows it within you too. And what I want us to notice in this passage, and even in the passage of the storm, is, is that Jesus isn't really looking to rebuke you for it. He's not mad at you for having fear. He's not angry that fear exists. But what he does want to do is he wants to calm it within you. He knows that the only counter to fear is peace, that you would be filled with peace. But truly, what is the disciples' peace? Their peace is Jesus. It is Christ himself, because when they lost Christ, their peace left them. But when he returned, their peace was found again. The prophet Isaiah says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. It is his very nature and character to bear peace into the lives of those who know him. But then he continued in verse 20, he says, And when he had said this, that is, when he said to them, Peace be with you, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You see, the truth and reality is it's not just enough sometimes for us to hear the words peace, but it's to actually be shown what peace means. And for us, in our case, peace truly did come in Christ. Peace was bought for us when he was nailed to the cross and died a death that we deserve, not him. And so when he showed them his nail-scarred hands and his pierced side, what he was showing them was, this is what peace looks like for you. I am with you. I am here. I am yours. You do not have to be afraid. I paid every price. There is no more things that you should have to be afraid of. Death is no more. Sin is no more. In me, there is freedom. In me, everything that you want and everything that you need can be found. 
peace. Peace was revealed in his nail-scarred hands and his spear-pierced side. But not only could they see them, they could touch them, they could feel him, they could know him, they could know that this is the real and living God. He is here before them. Death could not hold him. He is alive. You know, scars are a really interesting thing. There's something that we bear for our entire lives. Once we have one, they're always there. There's no way to really get rid of them. I mean, you can lessen their visibility to an extent, but, but they're always there. I actually love uh, this definition from uh, the National Health uh, Service um, from in the UK. It says, when the skin is wounded, the tissue breaks, which causes a protein called collagen to be released. Collagen builds up where the tissue is damaged, helping to heal and strengthen the wound. A scar is a mark left on the skin after a wound or injury is healed. Scars are a natural part of the healing process. Most will fade, although they will never completely disappear. We all have scars in our lives, whether they are physical, invisible, but they're also scars that are not left by physical injury, but that are invisible to the heart. They're mental and emotional damage. And you see this pain, this fear that the disciples are feeling right now, it's a wound deep within them. And Jesus sees that fear within them and knows what they're going through. He knows their experience. And so when He steps into that room, His revealing to them of His physical injury of, of revealing to them his scars, which, mind you, they are scars, which means they were healed. But they're still visible. Why? Because showing off his scars was the means by which he was able to work on the disciples' hearts and meet them in their own fear and pain. He stepped into their lives but by revealing that which had harmed him did not keep him down but he had come into his own. And so thinking about in our own lives, the scars that we carry, and mind you, I need to say and specify, scars are healed wounds. Scars are healed wounds. That in our own lives, in our own scars, what would it look like if we, the believers of Christ, were able to reveal our scars to others, the places where we had been hurt but now have been healed because of the work of Christ in us and through us. How much more could we work out what it is that Christ is doing in our lives as we bear witness to it for those that do not yet know Him? It was the scars of Christ that brought healing and comfort to the disciples. And we who have had the Holy Spirit breathed into us carry that same Christ. We carry those same wounds. But do we also carry those same scars? Are we allowing our scars to be a testimony to the world? And again, I want to reiterate, share your scars. Because when we share our wounds, we just end up bleeding all over people. 
You don't want to bleed on people. In your own wounds, find somebody that has had those wounds before, but they're now scars. And walk with them in that healing process. Let them be a revelation of Jesus to you in your life in that place. But I love how he finishes up. He says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You see, everything that transpired matters to this one end. Jesus was meeting them in their fear because first he wanted to make them have that comfort and peace of Christ, knowing that what Jesus did on that cross was for them. But then he wanted to push them out the door. He wanted to say, you can't let your fear lock you up. You can't let it hold you back. You have been called, you have been sent as I have been sent. And so you have to let your wounds become scars so that you can walk out that door into the world and share my name. So you can go into all the world. And here, I'm breathing on you, my Holy Spirit. My Spirit is with you. He will be with you wherever you go. That means I am with you wherever you go. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I, Christ, am with you. And as you see, the thing that brought fear to them was that Christ had left them. But the reality and the truth is that Christ is still with them. He's now with us, though, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as we go, as we have been called, we walk out these locked doors and we proclaim Christ is risen. And by His nail-scarred hands and His pierced side, fear is gone and peace has come. Are we going to be people that closely follow Jesus and overcome fear and, we, and allow ourselves to be pushed forward? Are we going to let fear drive and dictate how we continue to live in faith? I think oftentimes the church is driven by fear We make our decisions out of fear because we're afraid of what it might look like to actually share our faith sometimes. We're afraid of putting ourselves out there. We're afraid of the response we're going to get. We're afraid that people are going to reject us, that they're going to not respond to what it is that we have to say. We're afraid of ridicule. We might be afraid of losing our safety of losing our comfort, and dare I say, losing our homogeny. But but fear is not what Christ has called us to. Why should we fear what we do not yet know if we put ourselves out there? You see, I think the biggest fear that we have is that we fear of failing. We're afraid of failing. We're afraid that if we do it and we try and nothing changes, that our numbers don't grow, that we don't add to our community, and that maybe eventually the church dies. But my question is, is it better to fear and do nothing or to overcome the fear with Christ and do something? The truth is, failure isn't our responsibility. 
We have been called to try, to go, to, to leave the locked room and to share our faith with everyone we encounter. But it's God's will and desire as to whether or not it succeeds. The success for us is actually doing what we were called to do. We're never responsible for the outcome. And so Jesus did what he did by stepping into the room for the disciples. And so are we going to step out after we've been stepped into by the Holy Spirit, by Christ making his, this way possible through his death and his resurrection? Are we going to share how God in his death paid a debt that we could not pay and gave us life that was undeserved? Are we going to see that his scars were made for us and that our scars were made for others? Are we going to let them experience it? And are we going to let them have peace? Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Will we be agents of peace in the world? Will we be like this revelation of Jesus to the disciples in a locked room? to the people that have locked themselves in their hearts by showing them that peace has come into the world. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, let us be agents of peace. Let us be, as you have revealed to the disciples in your appearance to them, with your nail-scarred hands that there is nothing that they have to fear, you overcame. They were so afraid of death and what the Jewish authorities might do to them, they forgot that you are alive. And so they saw and they witnessed and they were filled with your Holy Spirit to go and to share outside locked doors. We thank you, Lord. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.